Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Keep On Loving You, written by Ario Speedwagon lead singer and our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Kevin Cronin. Kevin Cronin joined Ario Speedwagon as the band's lead singer prior to the release of the group's second album in 1972. He contributed three songs to the project, including Music Man, but departed during the recording of the follow-up LP, Riding the Storm Out. After a brief solo career, Kevin returned to the group in 1976 and went on to write some of its most enduring songs, including Roll With The Changes, Time For Me To Fly, and Don't Let Him Go. Additionally, he wrote the band's only number one hits, Keep On Loving You and Can't Fight This Feeling, cementing REO Speedwagon's legacy as both classic rockers and masters of the power ballad. In a career spanning more than five decades, REO Speedwagon has sold more than 40 million records and has landed more than a dozen top 40 hits on the Billboard chart, including Take It on the Run, which was written by lead guitarist Gary Richrath. In addition to Kevin's success with his own band, his songs have been covered by artists ranging from the Lemonheads to Dolly Parton. The Grammy-nominated music legend also happens to be just about the nicest rock star you'll ever meet. Part 1 Scott, I'm just going to come right out of the gate today and say today's episode is brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. And often, you know, then we'd go into some sort of like maybe stuff we think is funny to say about it and try, try to put it together in a, kind of a humorous way. Mm-hmm. But I'm a little tired of that. I just want to talk seriously about the work Pearl Snap Studios does for people. Okay. I, I'm going to say uh, I'm putting on my serious face. Go ahead. Yeah. So if writers write a song and they don't know how to get it to that next level and to get it recorded in a way that, you know, that's going to sound competitive, that's going to sound like it's radio ready, Pearl Snap Studios is a place you can send the song remotely through the internet, email it, whatever, and they'll take care of all that work for you. So you do the work writing the song. They operate as a remote studio to put your song together in a great demo that's going to sound way better than what you could do. Period. Well, I appreciate uh, you cutting back on the tomfoolery. Yeah. Uh, I have never found you nearly as entertaining as you seem to think you are. Fair enough. And uh, I think just putting the facts out there to the people and uh, and letting them decide is the way to go. So um, I, I'm going to give you a big thumbs up on that one and say, hey, cool. folks, go to PearlSnapStudios.com and uh, find out what they can do for you. You will not believe what they can do for you. It's amazing. No joke. You know, Paul, today we are speaking with Kevin Cronin, who uh, is just an incredible guy, and we'll yep. get, get more into that here in a minute. But, you know, as we talk about in the interview with Kevin, there was uh, a, an infamous moment where you and I, in our first band, uh, actually did a little REO Speedwagon cover song uh, <laughs> yeah. at, I, I think, the sophomore year homecoming dance, which was... Uh, memorable for its lack of greatness. Uh, <laughs> absolutely butchered it, but um, time for me to fly. Yes, That's the one we, we did. Time for me yeah. to fly, and uh, I think being the only guitar player in the band, I took off the acoustic guitar after the intro, put on the electric guitar for like the kick in part. I think we just dropped out for a couple bars there <laughs> while that happened. Nothing like dead uh, air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but uh, but anyway, it, it got me real nostalgic um, thinking about talking with Kevin and and thinking about the songs that kind of formed us and and you know Ario Speedwagon was was before our time mm-hmm. but we were kind of looking backwards and and we were loving that music um but Tracy Chapman um was kind of 
of our time. Yeah. And we were digging on Tracy Chapman in our high school days. I think Fast Car came out in 1988 was actually a little before we were uh, high school age. But something about that song is pretty timeless. It just yeah. kind of hung around. Uh, that well, Tracy Chapman album was was still pretty big when we were in high school. Yeah, it had a little bit of that sort of altness to it, you know. Uh, where you felt like you were listening to the cool older brother rock that we've talked to talked about before. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So yeah, it, it it kept its cool. Yeah. For several years after after it came out. Yeah. So we we felt kind of smart listening to Tracy Chapman. Exactly. Uh, and you know we do what we can to feel smart. <laughs> um, but uh, most people probably already know this, but it's it's well known at this point. But um, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. Uh, was recently covered by a country artist named Luke Combs. Yeah. And uh, it is not only a massive country hit, but it has crossed over to the pop chart, the Hot yeah. 100 chart. And as of uh, right now, it's sitting at number two. The only thing blocking it from number one is another country artist, Morgan Wallen. So for maybe the first time in history, I'm not sure about that, but maybe the first time in history you have the number one and number two song on the pop charts are actually country songs. Well, I know it doesn't happen very often that you've even got a country song that high in the pop chart. I think the last time we said was Eddie Rabbit. Yeah, 1981, <laughs> I Love a Rainy Night. That was the last time that a solo country artist had a number right. one, uh, sorry, solo male country artist because Taylor Swift, uh, right. you know, she sort of bends categories, so right. it's hard to say. But if we want to, you know... So you could say that that country artist Taylor Swift, if she is that, has topped the the pop charts. But the last time that a male country solo artist did it was 1981. Um, So right now it's Morgan Wallen with the song Last Night. And uh, it's been sitting atop the charts for over a dozen weeks. Uh, We're actually going to be talking to Ashley Gorley, who's one of the co-writers of that song uh, on our next episode. So we'll have a lot to talk about with him uh, in regards to that. But this Luke Combs, Tracy Chapman, Fast Car thing is it's kind of a phenomenon. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to think about a song like that being a country song. I don't think I ever would have put that together. In fact, if you just look at the title, Fast Car, I'm like, well, that's a good country title. (laughs) But if you think about Tracy Chapman and you think about her sound and you think about actually that whole record had a very urban feel to me. And I don't mean in terms of the sonics of it at all. Uh, because it was acoustic guitars and things right. like that. But in terms of the you know the subject matter that she was dealing with, it felt like a very urban record. So to think about you know those lyrics, those themes uh, showing up in a, in a country song uh, is is kind of a trip. Yeah. And, and I actually, you know, this kind of became a phenomenon before I was really aware that it was going on. So I heard about it and I went and listened to the Luke Combs version being prepared to hate it. Um, because I love the Tracy sure. Chapman version yeah. and I'm like, wow, it's a really faithful rendering of yeah. the song. Like, and, and so I looked into it a little bit. Apparently Luke Combs has been playing this song in concert for years and it's a huge fan favorite and he just wanted to record it. And, and, you know, when you talk about songwriting, Luke Combs is a songwriter. I mean, right. he writes most of his own stuff. So when you're an artist and you're that, you know, popular and you're that successful and, and he is one of the top artists in the country world um, to go like, Hey, basically most any song at this point that this guy puts out is going to be successful. So to go, even though I'm a writer and I got a ton of original songs, I really feel strongly about doing this cover song. I'm not going to get any income as a writer from this, but I just, you know, I love the song. So I I was pleasantly surprised at the way that he faithfully covered it. And, And it, and it has sort of the spirit of the original, but you make a really good point. Uh, when you say 
there was something very urban about it. And, and Tracy Chapman was writing this record from the perspective of like a working class black woman looking around her urban environment. And, you know, she's just talking about domestic violence. She right. was talking about um, police brutality. She yep. was talking about um, all kinds of social issues in her songs. And you're like, well, that's an interesting leap over yeah. to, you know, this mainstream country artist. I mean, you remember that song was like, last night I heard the screaming loud voices behind the wall. Yeah. Uh, the police always come late if they, all, if they ever come at all. Yeah. Remember that lyric? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, I always felt like this album took place in an apartment building. It didn't take place in, in a <laughs> right. in a country house somewhere down the lane. Right, right. Um, so that's what I mean by urban when I say it had an, an urban. It had a city feel to it. Yeah, and Luke Combs is is actually loyal enough to the song that the song is sung from the perspective of of a woman. Yeah, and you know he didn't change that at all. Like right. he didn't change, he didn't flip like, well, I got a fast car and you, right. you know, so there's even a line in one of the later verses in the song where he says, uh, I work in the market as a checkout girl. And <laughs> Luke Combs is like <laughs> this big burly dude with a beard, right? And right. singing like, I work in the market. He, like, he didn't change. He says checkout girl. Yeah. I, I work. I yeah. That. Yeah. I work in the market as a wow. checkout girl. And you know, so the, I'm like, you know, I, I'm not the most savvy guy <laughs> in the world. But I read the headlines, and it, it seems that there is a, a large swath of America that seems <laughs> very concerned about gender and, right. and gender identity and, and, you know, who's supposed to fit into what box. You know, people yeah. seem to get really worried about this. I kind of, just from my observation, have noted that a lot of those people who seem really worked up about these things also tend to often be fans of commercial country music. Right. And so now we've got this huge <laughs> popular song of this burly dude saying, I work in the market as a checkout girl. And I don't know if I understand the world at all. So, well, uh, but <laughs> I mean, I think it's cool that he just, that he did that. I mean, he's not saying he is a checkout girl. He says he works as one. So it, <laughs> it, I mean, it, <laughs> what, what you do on the job, <laughs> right, you know, right, I, I think that's right, just kind of a, a man's right, business, you know, just right, I get it. I, yeah. yeah. Why uh, can't a woman have a fast car though? You know, back to that point. I mean, right. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My wife drives me around sometimes. Right. <laughs> Does she drive fast? <laughs> yes. Unfortunately. <laughs> that's why, that's yeah. why, that's why you've got great yeah. hairs. Car's not green. fast. The driver's fast. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but no, I just think that that's like notable you yeah. know and i think it's interesting i mean i, I and <laughs> i i totally actually and interesting i applaud luke combs for just going here's this song yeah here's how this song here's goes. how it goes yeah tracy chapman wrote it this way i'm putting it out there this way it's like it's interesting and by the way it seems to have worked uh, yeah i mean that's what's incredible yeah. about it like no one like raised their hand and went, hey we don't like this right um, exactly yeah so here we are in this historic moment uh top two pop songs this week are country songs uh, i'm guessing for the first time ever we're gonna dig more into that uh next episode um when we talk to ashley gorley who is one of the writers on that uh morgan wallen song last night that's that's keeping the tracy chapman song from the number one spot um but notably as a songwriter tracy chapman has never performed better on the pop chart uh, right you know yeah. than, than she's doing right now and um i have actually sought out tracy chapman to be on songcraft i've been looking for her uh and like 
she's she's hard to find yeah. uh and, and i've wanted to have her on songcraft for years and i hope maybe uh you know maybe maybe she maybe she'll poke her head up to uh to talk about something like this and that would be amazing because i think she's phenomenal right. um and, and i hope we get to do that one day but before we uh you know get get tracy chapman on the show and and before we segue here into this conversation with kevin cronin just want to remind folks about Patreon. Yeah. Uh, we talked about this last episode, but Patreon uh, is a way that you can join the team and, and help us. So, Paul, why don't you tell folks a little bit about how Patreon works? Yeah, Patreon works in that you, you sign up for a different level of support, uh, monthly support, and it's not that much. A few bucks come out a month, and then you can kind of get some really cool perks from us. One of the perks that you can get from us uh, is some behind-the-scenes talk uh, in terms of what happened with the interview, how the interview was set up, anything weird that we did before or after or during, <laughs> um, which usually happens. Uh, and Kevin Cronin's a great one. We, yeah. we We've got yeah. some great stories surrounding how the Kevin Cronin interview came to be, um, how it went down, and even uh, what sort of dorks we were afterwards. <laughs> and uh, so I, I would encourage everybody to go to patreon.com slash songcraft show, or um, if you already have the Patreon app for some reason, you can look us up there as well. Um, but please be a part of what we're doing. I mean, there are costs associated with putting this uh, putting this podcast together from web hosting to Mike purchasing, even we purchased the songs that we use on the episodes. I mean, to hair and makeup, uh, for hair us, and makeup, you yeah. know, uh, no, but we actually, uh, had recently posted on our Patreon page, uh, kind of a sample. Cause this is sort of new for us that we're going to start offering these behind the scenes, um, things for a certain tier. So we posted a, a freebie, um, that anybody can go look at at patreon.com slash songcraft show. And that's P A T R E O N.com slash songcraft show. Um, um, so we, we posted one about our Graham Nash episode, a little behind the scenes um, a, as a teaser. This one uh, we're going to be posting only for those folks who support us at the level that gains access to um, to, to these behind the scenes moments. And we're going to post that uh, today, right before we post the episode. So it'll be ready for you to, to hear um, right after you listen to the Kevin Cronin interview. But it is probably one of our more interesting behind the scenes. It involves... Uh, us going out of town. It involves uh, an Indian casino. It involves you winning a significant amount of money yep. while gambling at said Indian casino. It involves uh, Cracker Barrel. Multiple it involves Cracker Barrel. It involves <laughs> multiple canceled and rescheduled yep. versions of this interview. It involves the interview not even ever happening at the Indian casino. Right. It involves you, us. You're going to give it all away now. Dude. Well, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Uh, it involves us going to Kevin Cronin's home, yep. uh, hanging out with him in his pool house uh, for the afternoon. And it was a lot more conversation than even what we recorded. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So um, if you want to get involved, maybe you already support us on Patreon. And if you do, we thank you for that. Go listen to this behind the scenes thing. If you don't support us yet, here's your chance to, to support us and get a little bonus content as well. Um, but you'll hear all about in that bonus what a great guy Kevin Cronin is, but we're not even going to have to tell you because you're about to hear this interview. And man, we say this, I would say frequently about guests being nice people. And we mean it when we say it, we don't, yeah. I think there's just a lot of nice songwriters out there, but you know, when we say that we're not just blowing smoke, uh, but boy, this one, like even amongst the nice guys, he just stands out. Yeah. And I think there's something that happens, especially when, you know, he could tell that we're fans, you know? Yeah. And and those are the moments when you feel like someone could either hold you at arm's length or really kind of welcome you in 
right. you know, via the conversation. And Kevin was a guy that really welcomed us in. Yeah. Not only to his home, but just, just the way he talked to us. It felt like th- he gave us a lot of mutual respect. And I think by the end of it, we felt like kind of buddies yeah. talking about it all. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is crazy because we're talking about some of our favorite <laughs> songs and some huge hit moments and s- some of his crazy relationships and things that have happened throughout his career, which normally I would just sit and watch on a documentary. Right, right. And, and to sit and, and hear it from the man himself was, was pretty amazing. Yeah. So we're going to quit our yakking and let you guys hear this fantastic conversation with the great and super nice Kevin Cronin. Part two. Kevin, welcome to Songcraft. Welcome to my, uh, my home. Yeah, it's great to, to be here speaking with you, looking out the windows at the beautiful view and the hillside. First in-person interview since, since the, the, pandemic. the pandemic. Oh, no way. Yep. Yeah. Wow, that's true. We used to do yeah. almost all of them uh, in person before the pandemic, and then we got relying on Zoom, but yeah. we're back, baby. Nice. <laughs> real humans in a real room. Well, I understand that you were born and grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and I don't know that regionality means now what it once did, but there was a time where regional radio was a thing and something could be a a regional hit. Things were not as sort of homogenous as they are now. And I'm always curious to, to ask people, you know, at the time when you were growing up, you happened to be in that particular place at that particular time. What kind of things were you hearing and absorbing that proved to ultimately kind of shape your own creativity? Well, growing up in Chicago um, in the in the 50s and early 60s, there was one radio station, WLS Radio, hmm. uh, 890 on your AM dial, you know, WLS in <laughs> Chicago. And they played, um, they were a pop radio station. And so you could hear... Uh, a Beatles song, and then you would hear a Bobby Vinton song, and then you would hear a Yardbird song, and then you'd hear a Four Seasons song. So it was, it was pop radio at, at the time when the British invasion was taking place. And, I, you know, stations like WLS, there was a 50,000-watt station where it was Chicago-centric, but you could hear it in Iowa because there's mm. no mountains anywhere. So the the the, huh. the but as far as my influence, uh, you know, I was listening to WLS for the for the Beatles and the Birds and the Hollies and the Dave Clark Five and you know the newest. I was just every night I would just be waiting at ten o'clock for the for the top three most requested songs and. Uh, so in my quest to hear more Beatles and and Birds and Buffalo Springfield, that kind of jangly songwriter e music, I'd also hear, you know, Blue Velvet. You know, mm-hmm. I'd also hear uh, Ragdoll by the by the and so those songs, even though they weren't my favorites at the time, mm. they're in there somewhere. Yeah. You know, and and when when I think of my with the way my music evolved, it, um, you know. My love is the jangly Rickenbacker 12 string from, mm. you know, that Jim McGuinn played in The Birds yeah. and the harmonies of Crosby, Stills and Nash and the Hollies, all that acoustic guitar, really songwriter oriented stuff. But then I become best known for my kind of piano based uh, love songs. So where'd that come from? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Probably Bobby Vinton. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and you know, growing up in, in an area like the Chicago area, 
there's a Midwestern sensibility. Do something practical when you grow up, you know? At what point did you start to think music might be more than just a passion or a hobby, but something that you would actually pursue vocationally? Well, the first time I... First of all, walking around in Chicago carrying a guitar case, you might as well have had a shirt on that says, stop the car, jump out, and kick my ass immediately. <laughs> you know, I, I would be on, I'd be walking to my guitar lesson and, he, and here comes the car and, right. I, and, and the guys with the black leather jackets, you know, their hair greased back. And I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> Over the hedge, through the backyard. But it didn't matter, man. I was going to make it to my guitar lesson, yeah. bloodied or, or not, you know. But, um, but when I, first time I went to Nashville, I think I was 19. And I was following a girl, of course, and I never found her, but I did, <laughs> but I did find Nashville. And it was the first time that I walked down the street holding my guitar case and felt like yeah. I belong here. <laughs> like people would, people would come up and, and, you know, just, I mean, Nashville, it, it, if you're a musician in Nashville, you, you could not be in a better place because yeah. everybody... Everybody knows, you know, every bartender is a songwriter. Every, you know, it's like, it's, it's so you just, as a 19-year-old kid with nothing going on for myself, other than the fact that my band just broke up, it just, I just felt, I felt the mojo, man. Mm. I felt the songwriting mojo and I felt, I felt like I'd found a place where I belong. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So that was probably the moment when I was like, Yeah. This is who I am. I mean, it had always been that way, yeah. kind of. But, um, you know, how many millions of people who watched the Ed Sullivan show in 1963 and saw the Beatles, or 1964 and saw the Beatles, said to themselves, that's what I want to right. do. Mm-hmm. Millions right. of people did that. Yeah. And, you know, and I was one of them. But, you know. Somehow uh, it actually works. Somehow it act, I mean, <laughs> it, it makes no sense to me that, that, that it worked, but it did. Yeah. Well, you joined REO Speedwagon um, shortly after the group had recorded its debut album in 1971. So the first time we really get to hear you is the second release, 1972's TWO record. Um, and you actually wrote three songs that are on that album, uh, including Music Man, which is a song that you guys still play live. great upbeat you know rock song and to me it i hear maybe a little like elton john influence in there and a little bit of a, a little bit more of an edge to it as well would love to know what you were kind of absorbing and and what your influences were by the time that you got to that point like now you're a professional musician you're writing songs that are going to be on records that that people are going to hear what were you kind of soaking up by that point um, well, you know, I wrote Music Man before I joined Ario Speedwagon. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was kind of, I had a band that, had we stayed together, would have sounded 
kind of like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers-ish. That, mm. that, that was the direction we were going. Yeah. I played an electric Rickenbacker 12-string, which I still have. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we had three-part harmony, and we were writing kind of rocked-up folk songs, basically. Yeah. So Music Man kind of came out of... Um, you know, there was a, a real rich folk music scene in Chicago and a lot of clubs you could go to and, you know, late night clubs where there'd be a folk singer in the corner, you know, mm. singer-songwriter. So there was a, a heavy singer-songwriter thing going on. Music Man, I think, I'm trying to remember if that was, I think I wrote that after I heard Love the One You're With. Huh. When I heard Love the One You're With, I mean, you're going to hear the name Stephen Stills a number of times during this interview. But uh, Love the One You're With, just, I just loved that song. Because I'm, I'm a rhythm guy, you know. Yeah. I, I just love, you know, we, we were just in, in Puerto Rico and the, and the bands that they had in, playing in the lobby of the hotel, hmm. you know, with just timbales and, and congas and uh, just like incredible. Anyway, yeah. I, I get sidetracked there. But so, so Music Man was kind of, it was pretty, it was, you know, I had a rock band, but the band had just broken up. Yeah. And so, you know, I think Love the One You're With, that rhythm, if you listen, if you break down Music Man and you just listen to the rhythm guitar part, it's, 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 it's not what you might think, you know, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a bow diddly-ish beat, but there's one sixteenth note that's, that's off, you know, mm -hmm. instead of, uh, uh, instead of not fade away, or uh, which is strictly the the hand jive beat, you right. know, music man's a little a little bit of a variation, which is what I wanted, you yeah. know, and and uh, so um, yeah, it was kind of just uh, well, and the song, uh, if you talk about me joining Ario Speedwagon, that was the song. I played two songs for Gary Richrath when he uh, answered the advertisement for the musician's referral service in Chicago, <laughs> which was nothing but, a, but a, a, a facade for me trying to find a couple of musicians to join my band, you know? <laughs> so we had, I had flyers up in all the music stores, and, and you know, Gary's a, a guitar collector, and he went into the, the old Chicago Guitar Gallery on Wabash Street in Chicago, and one of my flyers was on the wall. Hmm. And, and he had become, I think, a little disenchanted with, with Terry Luttrell, who's a great guy. We, he gets up on stage and jams with us whenever we're, whenever we're in Champagne or anything. But yeah. I think Gary also had a sense that's the old, the, old, the old adage, you have your whole life to write your first album, got a year to write your second album. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think Gary was feeling the crunch of... Because even though all the songs on the first album are credited as written by Ario Speedwagon... Gary was the, the the heart and soul of the right. of, of that songwriting because he's you know he, uh, he was just a, a great country kind of songwriter right mm. so he knew that he needed some songwriting help so when he called the musicians referral service <laughs> of course. I pick up the phone, you know, and he thinks he's talking to like some real, you know, company that knows what That's they're amazing. doing, you know. And he, so he describes, he, he says he can't tell me the name of the band, uh, but they're signed to Epic Records and they're going to be going to Nashville to cut their second album in a few months. And I'm thinking, you know, we at the Musicians Referral Service, every guitar player was the next Jimi Hendrix. Every, <laughs> every lead singer was the next Roger Daltrey, <laughs> right, you know. Right. So I'd heard a million stories and it was starting to get old. Yeah. Yeah. But there was something about him 
that made me feel like he, like he just might be the real thing. So yeah. I'm like, all right. So he, he goes, I'm looking for a, for a lead singer who can play some rhythm guitar and write songs. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, on the vast list of, of uh, artists that we at the Musicians Referral <laughs> Service represent, there's only one guy that I think would be good for, for, for what you're looking for. And he's like, all right, where do I, how, how do I meet him? So I give him my address. I live right. in a little apartment up near Loyola University in Chicago. <laughs> and one of those same flyers was taped in the window. That was the world headquarters of wow. the Musicians <laughs> Referral Service. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, and your voice has become very much the sound of, of that band. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, Gary's guitar playing was scorching at times. You know, the oh. solos would just be massive. And then with what your voice does, which isn't, it's not a gravelly Paul Rogers type voice. Right. It's not a Roger Daltrey type voice where it sounds like it's an amp breaking up. It's, it's this... more of a weird Al Yankovic type voice. Is what <laughs> no, it, that, that, that's, that's kind of where I, I kind of see myself. <laughs> no, it's, it's this clear melodic, you know, thing that, that, that leads the band, but they, they fit so well together which I think is one of the, the really interesting components of your band. But did it ever feel, because singers can often feel like they're in competition with the volume of the band. You think? <laughs> <laughs> and was that something as a writer that you even had to contend with, like putting songs together that are going to present these melodies the way I want them to be presented, but are also going to have the weight and the muscle that this band wants from a guitar standpoint too? Yeah. I mean, that was really... That was the challenge because yeah. when you know Gary came up to my apartment, I played Music Man for him, and I also played Holiday Inn by Elton John, yeah. side two of Madman Across the Water. It's a great song, and I I thought I was the only person on the planet that knew that song, and Gary thought the same thing. Huh. So we, wow. I mean, I could have picked any song to play, yeah, but I picked that one, hmm. and that was and and when, when I played that, I could I saw Gary. It was like you know how you look for signs in life. Yeah. You yeah. know, he that was like a sign for him, hmm. and and so that created a bond. When, when, and then I played Music Man, and he I had just written Music Man, so it kind of yeah. rocked. So he kind of related to that. But to your point, you know, I was coming from a folk rock place. Yeah, Ario Speedwagon's first album was just straight ahead power riff rock songs you know it was it was you know definitely more uh you know more deep purple than yeah. buffalo springfield you know yeah so i knew it was going to be a challenge because he because i went out i went out and saw the band i just just out in the audience just watched them and um rich Rath just he 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 was mesmerizing i mean mm. the band was was good don't don't get me wrong but Gary had a thing about him, man. Just, it was more than what he played. It was the way he played it. Just the way uh, he he just became one with the instrument. Yeah. You know, he literally, I mean, he actually he literally danced with those guitars. Wow. If, if you remember, uh, hit, you know, the shows that we played, you know, while Gary was with us, and he had this fringe leather guitar strap. You know, and he was just this beautiful guy, thin, muscular, this long curl. I mean, he would just, you know, uh, the, 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 <laughs> he, we, we had a little game. It was kind of his game. But after the show, he would always walk out and look on the floor 
in front of in front front of the various mic positions on stage. And this is back in the days of flash cubes. And he would be looking to see where the biggest pile of flash cubes was. That's amazing. You know? <laughs> and it was always back in those days it was always in front of him. It was no contest and, and he liked it that way. That's but, right. Uh, right. Yeah. But 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 to get to, again to your point, sorry, um, you know, that was gonna be I knew that was gonna be the, the challenge. How is this how is this rock band solid rock band there was there was no vocal harmony it was you know it was a different yeah. thing how where am i going to fit into this thing and, and i i literally thought I, I i don't i don't i don't see myself in this band but but gary had an effect on me because i was like i could just tell i mean i'm i'm a pretty driven guy when it comes to music i just always have been and I felt that from Gary when, when we met in my apartment. That, that was a pretty ballsy thing to do. To the, the band didn't even know about it. That, you yeah. know, that, that's why I was in the audience for the show. And their powerful manager, Irving Azoff, didn't know about it. And you know, Ario was Irving's first client, management oh, wow. client. Yeah, wow. back in Illinois. Wow. And uh, so Gary was doing this all, you know, surreptitiously. You know, so. I was like, the chances of this working out are one in a million, but, yeah. uh, and that was going to be the challenge. How yeah. are we going to, how am I going to maintain my identity as a singer songwriter, you know, but I liked, I liked to rock too. So the thing was my material needed some power mm. and Gary's material needed some mel- melody and harmony yeah. and some acoustic guitar. And, and it took us, took us a long time to, to, to finally find that balance. And yeah. it, it, the balance lasted for about three years, you know, a, a number of years leading up to it, three years of, of balance, and then the years leading away from it. Ah, so, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, you left the band during the making of the second album, or third album for the band, second album with you, Riding the Storm Out. It's kind of um, you to say that I left the band. I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you and the band parted ways. I was asked to leave, <laughs> let's put it that way. You were asked to leave and you obliged. So you yes. left the band. Yes. Um, but you came back in 1976, and um, I'm actually curious because if you if you go online, it'll say you know that Kevin left the band for a solo career during the uh, during that era. But then I, I can't find much info about it, so I'd love to just kind of know like what was, what was going on with you in that intervening time when you weren't in the band. Well, I will tell you this: I can sum up my solo career in one quick story. So. Back in, it must have been 73, uh, the Eagles had just, re- they were touring on the Desperado album, which I thought was a masterpiece. Yeah. And, but it was not really critically acclaimed. People didn't get it, because it, it was a concept album, right? And it, but it was so good. Anyway, so they were, they're, they're struggling a little bit. They're, they're playing the Morris Auditorium in South Bend, Indiana. And I get a call um, about, a few days before the concert seeing if I want to open the show just solo acoustic and I'm like yeah that's me solo acoustic you know <laughs> this is my solo career yeah. so I go down there and, and I had played the, the room before with Ario it's one of those old beautiful you know theaters and uh, so I'm standing in the wings and I've uh, got my guitar my Guild 12 string and the DJ goes out and uh you know, he, and he goes, well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure 
to introduce to you a gifted singer-songwriter from Peoria, Illinois. And I'm like, wait a minute, from Peoria, Illinois? So I'm like, sweet, so he got that wrong. Right. You know, he goes, please welcome Columbia recording artist. I'm like, Columbia, that's epic in, in Columbia. <laughs> okay. so, you know, same thing. Columbia recording artist, Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm standing there, and it's like I either turn around and run out the stage door crying and never, n- never to perform again, or I walk out, and I just... And play longer. And I just, I just, yeah. <laughs> play to the morning. Yes. Uh, so, but no, I walked out and, and, and did the gig. Um, but that was a, uh, that, that, that was a, it was a challenging moment, you know. Wow. And, then, and, you know, in, in anyone's career who has any kind of longevity, there are moments like that where when you think back, it could have gone either way. That could have, messed me up for life and you know but you know I, I'm a pretty as I said I'm a pretty driven guy and uh, I have some sort of blind faith in what I do that's the only thing that I have faith in that I can do is, is music basically so um, uh, yeah so but so, so I did that I bounced around playing some some clubs and then and meanwhile um, I had a little team in Chicago working on my uh, solo career, the, the late great Gary Loizzo, who was the lead singer for the American Breed, mm. uh, sang "Bend Me, Shape Me," and ended oh, yeah. up producing "Sticks" and doing "Sticks" as front of house sound. Amazingly talented man, uh, and Bill Trout, who started Wooden Nickel Records, who signed "Sticks" originally. Mm. They're working on my solo career, and it looked kind of promising at first, and then after a few months. I could just, I started getting the feeling that this wasn't, it wasn't catching fire, mm-hmm. you know? And so that kind of messed me up. Mm-hmm. And I was at Bill Trout's office one day. I walked into Bill Trout's office and I had a little bit of a toothache. And his secretary said, oh, you got a toothache here. And he, she gave me a little prescription bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, she goes, you know, take one of those, it'll help. So I took one, and it helped hmm. in more ways than one. Yeah. Hmm. And so, uh, so that became a, 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 a kind of a lost, close to a year. Hmm. And wow. you know, fortunately for me, you know, I'm uh, I'm too too much of a chicken to get addicted to anything. <laughs> but but I uh, but I but I th- those though I I went in for for a refill every ten days on that prescription, and. You know, I just took a couple of them every day. So I, so I, I could stop whenever I wanted to, but it, it got me through the night. So it was, it was an addiction of sorts, yeah. even, th- even though when I finally realized that um, I w- was getting nowhere fast, I hadn't played a gig in almost a year, uh, it was like, all right, this shit's got to go. Yeah. So I'll never forget, I was living in a high-rise building up on the north side of Chicago, and there was a trash chute, and, you, that, and it 14 floors down, and then everything is, is together. So that prescription bottle was my connection with this, it was a medication called Tallwin, hmm. you know, kind of an opiate, an opiate of some sorts. Yeah. And I knew, once I dropped that bottle down the trash chute, 
There was no turning back. You wow. know? So that was another big moment. But from then, at that time, I was like, I got my guitar out, man, and I started playing, and I started singing, and I was, I was friendly with this, a, a, a girl in, in town who I would end up marrying, my first wife, uh, and she was a singer-songwriter. So she kind of introduced me to some club owners in Chicago, and I started working again, man. I started. I was playing four sets a night, and uh, you know a lot, and just up and down Lincoln Avenue in Chicago. You know the Quiet Night, the Earl of Old Town, um, Orphans, all these places where people like Steve Goodman and John Prine and all these Bonnie Kolak, all these amazing Chicago folk singers had played. But I had a little more of a rock thing going, even yeah. though it was acoustic guitar. So uh, that was the story of what was happening yeah. in, in those years. So I was ready when I got the phone call. You know, I was I was primed. You know, yeah. I, I'd been playing. So yeah, yeah, you're already in. You're already in your fighting shape when I they was. called you back. I kind of <laughs> was. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that, that when you sort of begin that portion of the story with with the pill bottle, it's like, oh, oh wow, we know where that story goes. It rarely stops after a period of months or a year. Right. I mean, that's that's an amazing turn there. Um, which it it strikes me that there is, uh, you know, you mentioned you say you're too chicken to get addicted, but it actually sounds to me like there's some self discipline that showed up there. Um, is that something that's been a hallmark of your career in terms of being able to see a situation, whether it be creative, whether it be professional, whether it be whatever, and look at it clear-eyed and say, this is what I have to do. It's a tough decision, but I've got to make it. I mean, is that, are you that guy in the band? Is that your approach to things? Yeah, probably. I mean, to, <laughs> to, to some degree, I think, yeah. you know. Because um, in the creative world, that, that type of practicality, that type of just, you know, I, maybe I'll go back and say Midwestern, that sort of like, you know, pragmatic discipline is not something that you all often see in, in the life of a band. yeah. I mean, I think I think um, I was lucky that 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 those that 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 medication d didn't sink its claws into me deeper. Yeah. You know, I, I I just thank my lucky stars for that because it didn't have to. As you say, it didn't have to go that way. But yeah, I think there there was probably a part of me that uh, uh, that didn't want to go there. Yeah. You know, and and. Uh, but when it comes to to music and and creativity, I, I'm I'm pretty good at at at, at leading a band. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty good at um, you know finding the common ground between people. So if if, so, if things are people are at, at odds, you know, tr trying to bring people closer. And but in Scenario Speedwagon, we also had Alan Gratzer. Uh, the original drummer and Gary and I get all the glory because we were the songwriters, the producers, the kind of the front men. But Alan was really the guy who helped not only keep the beat, but keep the peace. Because yeah. Gary and I, G Gary and I had very strong ideas about about songs, about the direction of the band, about music, and we both had the same goal in mind. We both just wanted to make the best records we could make and put the best songs that we had on those records and, you know, and then produce the records, you know, we both felt really strongly. Yeah. And so there were, there were times along the way, and, and Alan was always in the room, and he was, he, he was one of the founding members of the band. Also, just a, uh, 
just a great guy. Mm. That's all I can say. He's the kind of guy that you want to play golf with. You yeah. know what I mean? Just a, and he, more so than me back in those days, was the guy who kind of, kind of kept the peace. Gary and I were the driven, you know, brothers who, you know, loved each other like brothers, fought like brothers. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, Keith Richards has a great quote in his book where he says, um, Mick and I have a love-hate relationship. He loves me, and I hate him. <laughs> you know, and I think you can plug most bands, the lead singer, sure. lead guitar, as you right. were saying earlier, yeah. that there's a, you know, we know we need each other, but we wish we didn't need each other yeah. at some times, you know, and, and there's always, you know, the, the, the guitar player has something the lead singer doesn't have, the lead singer has something the guitar player doesn't have, so. Um, well, and, and you talked about getting that call, to, to come back and and when you did come back you know you'd have a song like Breakaway which actually operated kind of like a duet Part of striking that balance was that a little bit of like, hey, if, if we're going to come and do this, we got to find a way to coexist, and maybe even in the same song. Well, you know what? I'll tell you this: the I think um, I think the the thing that really uh, caused the call was uh, was I sent uh, uh, my demo of a song called "Keep Pushing" mm -hmm. down to the to the management office because I kept in touch with Irving and John Barrick, and and uh, so I just sent this demo down just for kicks and the demo was pretty good we got some good Chicago players and Gary Loizzo produced it for me and I was singing better and the song you know Keep Pushing was definitely an upgrade songwriting wise mm -hmm. from, from the stuff I wrote on REO TWO and I think the band realized that they were also the, you know the, the run with Mike Murphy had kind of run its course you know Murph was also uh, managed by Irving you know I, I, I back in Champaign, so it made sense for, for Murph to step in when I left. But it was always, I was always curious as to why they would pick another stylistic, mm. you know, Murph is an amazing R&B, blue-eyed soul, you know, keyboard player, guitar player, his voice. But it just, I, I, I just happened to be in Florida one weekend when Ario was playing back, it must have been 75, and so I showed up at the stage door, and there's one thing about our band, anyone who's ever been in it, anyone who's ever been in the crew, you show up at the, at the back door, you're in, you got a laminate, you're eating with us, you're, you're hanging with us, you know, yeah. and, and, and something that, that That's I, cool. I take pride in. But I, I, so I stood on the side of the stage and I'm watching them play and I'm watching Murphy and I love Murphy, you know, I really do. He's supremely talented, but I'm like, they, they broke into Like You Do, which is a song from the REO TWO record. And I was just like, wait a minute. That's the first song I ever learned with REO Speedwagon. I'm <laughs> like, that's my song, <laughs> even though I didn't write it. Yeah. But I kind of wrote that, that, that scat thing at the ending. Yeah. I wrote that. And I was like, this is, this is just not right. So I came back in the dressing room after the show, 
And uh, Neil Dowdy takes me aside and he goes, I just want you to know that they're circulating a petition around, it started in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and you know this is before the internet, of course, and there's about 5,000 names on it of people who are urging us to get back to the REO TWL lineup. Mm. Wow. I'm like, hmm, that's an interesting comment to make to me. And it was like, so that was the first time yeah. that there was a little energy in the air that, huh, okay. Yeah. So I, I wasn't completely surprised when I, when I got the phone call. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys definitely had a significant commercial breakthrough in 1978 with the album You Can Tune a Piano, But You Can't Tune a Fish, uh, which is a great title that I still sometimes just oh, yeah. like make that joke to people and yeah. hope they don't know about it and then pretend <laughs> like it's my dad joke. Um, but that was the band's seventh album overall, their third uh, with you as a member. And that was actually the first album I believe that you and Gary actually co-produced. So you're, you're now taking, you know, your songs that you've written, but now you also have that control over them from the uh, idea stage to the writing stage to the arrangement. And now you're actually the guys in the studio who have, you know, the ability to make it come out exactly like you want. And, uh, you know, the results speak for themselves. Roll with the changes was on that record. Time for me to fly was on that record. It was, you know, huge. Um, talk a bit about how being in that producer's chair, you know, influenced your ability to kind of get onto tape. Maybe, you know, your vision without having to deal with some outside producer who maybe didn't get what you're trying to do as a songwriter. Right. Well, I'll tell you this: that you know, in our band, songs are power. And, and so for that album, I had, I had written, like you say, Roll to Change is Time for Me to Fly, another song called Blazing Your Own Trail Again, which, which was a, you know, could have been a single if, if things would have gone differently, perhaps. But, um, and Gary had, a, had some really good songs, too. Um, uh, uh, Sing to Me uh, is one of, one of my favorites of his. But at any rate, we felt like our previous albums had been produced poorly by amazing producers. Huh. Uh, you know, and the record company always just kind of assigned us producers, but we had Bill Halverson, who produced the first two Crosby, Stills, and Nash albums. You think I was kind of excited about that? Uh, <laughs> right. Bill Simzik, who had done the Eagles. Um, some, some really great, John Stronach, who did uh, Joe Walsh's So What? Um, you know, these guys... These were not rookies. These guys yeah. knew what they were doing, but for some reason, our records came out sounding flimsy, huh. and and uh, so we just finally felt like we got these songs. And, and I remember saying to, to 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 Gary, I'm like, Gary, we we got to produce this record ourselves because if a if an outside producer comes in and messes up these songs, it will it will destroy me because yeah. because those songs were so important to me. And, um, you know, and as a songwriter, you don't always know what song is going to become a hit, you know, you, but you do have, you, you know, you, uh, you, you know, th there's a lot of different food you like, but some are your favorite. And you, you walk into one restaurant and you go, wow, I've never had, you know, lasagna like that before. So yeah. as a songwriter, you kind of do get a sense when you kind of have a special one. 
you yeah. know, yeah. and 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 that's what I felt, and I didn't want to take any chances. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so Richrath and I barge into Ron Alexenberg, who was the president of Epic's office in New York City, and I have a feeling that that John and Irving probably did some behind the scenes uh, uh, work before we got there. Right. But in our minds, we're like walking in and, we're, and, and our thing was either we produce the next album or we refuse to record. That, that, that was back in the days when artists used to do that kind of right. shit. You know? right. and, uh, you know, so uh, we, we walk in the office and we give our pitch and Alexander goes, okay, just one thing I'd like you to do. And there was a guy sitting in the room the whole time, and he goes, uh, I'd like to introduce you to John Boylan. John Boylan, as you may know, you know was uh, uh, Linda Ronstadt's original manager, producer, right. produced the first Boston record. He had that massive selling Boston record. And uh, Luxembourg says, right, we, we, we would just like to ha- you to have John Boylan in the room with you, just in case. And I'm like... Win-win, baby. You know, that was, <laughs> yeah. and you know, having a little safety net there because yeah. we, you know, we had produced demos, but so it was like a, it was a great situation. John yeah. Boylan is, I love the man. You know, yeah. I can't, I can't tell you enough uh, about the great things that that he did. But um, so we had that confidence in the songs. We had John Boylan as a, as a, you know, as a for our confidence and. Uh, but it was really the songs that, 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 that allowed us to be in the position to become producers. Yeah. Mm. We, we had no track record as producers, but we had those songs. And uh, so we were determined to make those songs sound as much like we were hearing in our, in our head as we could. You know, in retrospect, I, I listened to the, to the record of Roll of the Changes. There is no bass drum or bass guitar. Somehow, <laughs> the, the, the bottom end was just lost because the drum beat you hear is, yeah. right? You don't hear boom, ka, boom, ka, boom, ka. You don't hear right. the, this funky rhythm that I had because right. there's no bass. But you know, it's it, like it, a Metallica it, record. You guys are just ahead. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out for us. When I am hearing the narrative and sort of the context surrounding these songs, sometimes the content now is sort of, you know, coming to light. I think about a song like Keep On Pushing we mentioned before, and you were talking about, you know, how you were sort of reclaiming your life and career. And that song, oh, that makes a lot of sense that you wrote that song during that period. I think about Roll With The Changes, and here you are coming, reuniting with this band. As soon as you're ready, I'm willing. You know, those lyrics seem like they might have a little bit of context there. Um, Do you write from a place of kind of autobiography like this is where i'm at right now this is a moment of expression i'm capturing where i'm at yep you know because you know we're always (laughs) thinking about the audience and what's going to work and things like that but that's different than writing down what's in my heart and what's in the moment well you know uh, to me there's 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 different phases of songwriting the the first phase is what i call the 
the creative explosion. The moment that you cannot teach, you mm. cannot learn. Uh, when it happens, you just have to have the wherewithal to remember it, yeah. capture it somehow on, on tape or whatever, um, and, and, and write as much as you can when you're in that magical kind of state, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and then you get as far as you can at that point. From that point forward, then it becomes a craft. Now it becomes, you know, right in the second verse. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Right. Uh, uh, you know, and, and finishing the song. And the, the feeling of, and you, you, you probably know this, but the feeling of finishing a song, especially one where you, because as you're writing a song, you're playing it over and over again, and then you get to a certain point, it's like, ah, oh, that sucks, I gotta, I gotta rewrite that. Right. So you, by the time you finish the song, you've played it, you know, a thousand times. Yeah. And that, but that final time where you play it and you're look, looking at your lyric sheet, you know, all the stuff that's crossed off and the arrows that are yeah. <laughs> showing this line is supposed to be there. And, you're, and you get through the whole thing for the first time. It's, it's a, I, I can't even, it, it, it's one of those feelings like, you know, I think comedians, you know, describe the feeling of getting a laugh. You know, yeah. it's like, they're, they're, you can't describe it. It's indescribable, but it keeps you coming back because yeah. songwriting is not easy. It's a, it's a commitment. And, and, uh, so, so that's, that's kind of phase two. And then phase three, if you're lucky enough to be able to make a record and even luckier to produce a record, then you're thinking of serving the song up to a certain point. And then you kind of have to be cognizant of the, you know, cause you want to get your record on the radio. Yeah. So, so what can we do? It's always, to me, it's always, what can we do? to not put the song in peril as a, as a piece of art, but make it as palatable to, yeah. uh, to be played on the radio as possible. And, and that's, that balance is, you know, it's, I'm, I'm always just guessing, right. but I've been fortunate enough to have guessed right a few times and, and it's worked out. Well, the way you worded it is, is perfect. You capture the experience. And, and when you talk about production, I've always, uh, use the Hippocratic oath that doctors say. The first line is first do no harm," right? And that's what I think about production: right. is like first right. do no harm, right? You know, and then what can we what can we add? How can we augment? But right. first, just try not to break it. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or don't put getting it on the radio ahead of right. what that song means to you and how you really hear that song. Because if you start if you start in too early of thinking about phase three. It, it's, yeah. it doesn't work. Well, because getting on the radio many. is different from standing out on the radio as well. And yeah. sometimes those, what seem like the rough edges of it are the things that make it original and the things that make it unique and interesting. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, speaking of rough edges, Paul and I were in our first band together <laughs> when we were 15 we years old. We should have just called it Rough Edges. Uh, in high school. I didn't realize you guys were band members. Yeah. Okay. Well, back in high school, we were in, nice. our, we were in a band together. Uh, and I think at the very first gig we played at our sophomore year homecoming dance. Oh, that's we, huge. Yeah, we played Time for Me to Fly. Um, nice. We turned it into a crime scene. It was, uh, I'm yeah, sure, <laughs> absolutely. There's probably a VHS tape of it somewhere that we should find. There is. Burn. I'll actually tell you, this is kind of funny, but uh, we, 
it was in a tent in a parking lot and there was no proper lighting. There was no stage lighting to make us look cool. But I think you had a strobe light. No, it somebody, wasn't mine. Somebody, somebody owned a, stro- a single strobe light. Nice. And so we turned to the stage and it was like, God, <laughs> that's, we can't look at that. So we, then we turned it around to the, to the crowd. Which made them not want to dance. Nobody got anywhere it. near the stage. There's this video. Everybody's clinging to the back of the tent as far as they can to get away from that strobe just light. Just in general, repelling the audience is usually something that you want to avoid. But go ahead. If I'd have met you at age 15, this, it would have been so much better. But. So uh, while our cover of Time for Me to Fly is certainly one for the history books, I'm sure, in terms of how bad it is, Dolly Parton covered that song, which... I would imagine that as a songwriter, you know, hearing another highly respected songwriter record one of your songs has to be such an amazing experience. And that's one of those songs that, you know, we were learning it in our band in in school. We've heard it on the radio a million times. It's one of those songs that you kind of forget that at one point that was a guy in a room writing a song. It sort of has (laughs) become part of the fabric. Like it's just always been there. It was it was a total surprise. I, mean, it, it, I don't know. And as a matter of fact, I just Dolly and I are back in contact. Uh, we're working on, on something together as oh, wow. we speak. As a matter of fact, but uh, but our relationship started with "Time for Me to Fly," hmm. and um, so I just got a copy of uh, an advanced copy of the LP, and it was side one, cut one, which of course, as a songwriter, makes you feel even more honored. You know, not, yeah. not only did she cut the song, but but she opened her album with it. Yeah, and it was on her White Limousine album. I put the laid, laid the needle down, and I thought maybe the turntable was spitting too fast. Or so I, I thought maybe I ha- had it on 45 <laughs> or 78 instead of 33. Because right. I've been around for you, been up and down for you. Now, you know, here's the fiddle solo, here's the mandolin solo, here's the banjo solo. Here's the... It blew my mind. I yeah. was so, uh, first of all, I was so shocked by it. But once the shock wore off, I was like, in a million years, would I've ever thought wow. to... to present this song in this way (laughs) but Dolly heard it that way and I'll I'll tell you something about Dolly talking about someone who you think who you take for granted what she that what she does has always been there because she's always just so Dolly I mean and 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 what you see is what you get but what I know what what I've recently learned about Dolly and in working with her over the past year or so is she is she's a she's a band member she, when, when she and I talk about songs and about recording things and about working things out, she talks like a band member. Huh. And hmm. so, so, so we're talking the same language. Yeah. She, she's not talking like a, like a diva, right. like, a, like, a, like one of the hugest stars in the history of music. Right. No, she's just in the band. And wow. her and I are just talking the, <laughs> you know, the, the, the right lingo. And yeah. uh, I just... I just love her. Uh, she's so. Uh, she's written me a couple of letters that that I literally am going to frame because oh. they're so, and, and they're so real and so. Uh, uh, but anyway, yeah. So yeah. to get to your, uh, you, you know, don't get me started on Dolly. But, <laughs> but uh, that that there's no greater compliment than yeah. someone uh, covering one of your songs, and yeah. and our songs have been covered by like really odd. Bands. I mean, keep on loving you. The list of covers of "Keep on Loving You" and 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 I just recently listened to them. Because, uh, I guess because of Dolly, and uh, really interesting takes. 
on the songs that I never would have imagined in my wildest dreams. But yeah. to hear the songs done, you know, I, I, even your crime scene event, I'm sure I would have, I'm sure I would have enjoyed it just to hear someone else's <laughs> well, take. You would have enjoyed it, all right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about anyone covering your material because, you know, to my ear, your vocal inflections are such a part of the melodies themselves. You know, that uh, if you were to, to get the be- beginner piano book version of Time For Me To Fly, you know, uh, you can see then you love a way. Like, it's got a, you right. don't just go a way. Right. Like, that little part is part of it. And even the fact that you say a way instead of a way. Right. Like, there, there is such a unique, I, I, don't you also kind of go, you still making me feel like, there's like a little extra <laughs> a little syllable like, in there, right? You know, that's <laughs> if I need is, it for the rhythm, I, I'll well, throw see, it that's, in. That's really fascinating to me um, because there's no one telling you you have to do that. Right. right? It's yeah. your song. There's not really a symmetry that you're trying to achieve because when you go, making me feel, you said, can't get any really. It's, but that line feels so right the way you did it. You got me stealing your love away cause you never give it. Peeling the years away and we can't relive it. Oh, I make you laugh. You make me cry I believe it's time for me to fly You said we'd work it out You said that you had no doubt but, you know, even they would talk about, I think Sinatra, they said he almost likened his voice to a trumpet. That, that was sort of the tone that he kind of went after. And I think when I play acoustic guitar, I think about a drum kit. Mm-hmm. I think about kick up here, That's snare me. down here, right? That kind of thing. Yep. When you approach your own voice as part of the writing instrument, because it is part of the writing instrument, and I can't imagine someone else, you know, the fact that you've written songs that other people have sung is sort of fascinating to me because your voice seems so very central to your songs. Um, I'm just going to say that. Okay. I don't even think there is a question. There. Yeah, no, I think there is. I, I, think, there's a, <laughs> I, I think there's a response, and, and that is that, you know, part of the songwriting process, you know, there's, there, there's, there's always um, an idea that happens, and there's what you happen to be playing on the guitar when the idea comes. And, um, and, and for me, I've always found that, that the most interesting parts of my songs come because I come up with a as I'm I come up with a lyric that doesn't really fit with the music that that I've written so far and rather than try to make try to force a size eight foot into a size seven shoe lyrically I'll go well wait a minute I kind of like this lyric and I like it so I'll change the music to fit the lyric so, so the song is a combination of the, the, the words fitting with the music and then at times the music having to kind of meander Shift, a little yeah. off to, to fit the, the, the words. So, um, so, and, you know, I think you mentioned earlier, Scott, the, the influence of Elton John. And mm-hmm. uh, I was a huge fan of Mad Men Across the Water. That record came out when I, when I was my first year of college. I went and saw... Elton play in, at the Eric Crown Theater in Chicago with, with the original four-piece band. He had added, mm. added the guitar player, wow. but it was Nigel on drums, and, and he, he opened with Tiny Dancer. Mm. And my song, Music Man, 
If you think about Tiny Dancer, you'll marry a music man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's where I got the title to my wow. song. Interesting. So, yeah. um, and, and Elton has that, I mean, you know, he's just on a totally other level in so many ways. Uh, and his vocal phrasing, I found very interesting. Mm. And I think his vocal phrasing came from the fact that Bernie gave him a, a lyric and Elton had to fit that lyric into the music that he wrote. So that's why his, he, he takes such liberty with, with, with words. Ah. And, and that, that's something that I really enjoyed. And so when I take a, uh, a certain word and add a, a tail on to it, yeah. you know, that's, that's, I think that's Elton somewhere, wow. somewhere living in mm. my brain, you know? <laughs> um, in 1980, you guys put out the High Infidelity album, which was stratospherically successful. Um, and the first single was Keep On Loving You, which has become just an absolute classic. Uh, another of those songs that we feel like has just always been there. And I meant every word I said when I said really a uh, a turn for you guys in in some ways you know now we're getting into power ballad territory a little bit more than like straight ahead rock band um and i read somewhere where you called that the most painful song that you had had ever written not to go to barbara walters on you here but uh <laughs> talk a bit about you know we talked earlier about the songs for you are personal statements they're not characters they're they're your heart um talk a bit about what sparked that song for you well i will tell you first of all that um as a songwriter you're always the good guy because you're mm. writing the song so it's coming from your perspective and keep on loving you was one of those songs where you know i'm kind of uh you know looking across at someone else and uh with a you laid still in the grass, all yeah. coiled up and hissing. That's not exactly a compliment, you know? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and it was, but I wrote those words. I mean, you know, sometimes as a songwriter, you just got to know when to get out of the way. Because mm. I woke up in the middle of the night, you know, stumbled into my little home studio in my first little house in Woodland Hills and sat down at my little red Wurlitzer electric piano, which was given to me by Gary Loizzo, which he had in his studio in Chicago, and just started playing those chords. Yeah. Same chords you hear at the intro of Keep On Loving You, and the first two verses to Keep On Loving You were in my lyric notebook before I even had a chance to think about them. Huh. And, um, so, like I say, when that's when you're in that kind of a moment, I call it a it's it's a holy moment, mm. you know. And I'm just lucky enough to be there when it happens. Yeah. Sometimes you just gotta like, okay, have respect for it. Just like go, just like I said earlier, you write as much as you can when you're in that moment. You yeah. get get it as far as you can go, 
and when you can't write anymore, when you're just like spent, then okay, then yeah. that's all you're meant to write. You're not yeah. maybe you're not meant to finish it tonight. Yeah. That's okay. You don't have to finish it that night. But um, yeah, so keep on loving you. You know that that uh, that story was definitely painful. I, I was I was a I had no idea that the song was going to go on to be uh, become the song it's become or I may not have been quite so blatant with, with, with the lyric you know mm-hmm. but uh yeah that didn't help my marital status let's put mm-hmm. it that way but um uh but the other side of it is that it takes two snakes to tango mm-hmm. you know and I was just telling my side of the story the truth is neither one of us had been had it was not it was not a faithful marriage you mm-hmm. know and um so but the next day, when I went into rehearsal with just those verses, um, I sat down at the piano and started playing those verses over and over again. And the guys came in to, one by one, and uh, and I was just at the piano, zoning out, just th- thinking. All I could think was, if I play these verses enough times, one time it'll, I'll go somewhere. It, it'll mm-hmm. take me where I need to go next. I can't force this. So I just played it. Oh, and the guys are sitting there. You can imagine they're sitting there going, "What is this?" You know. First of all, what are you doing at the piano? Yeah. Second, you know. And second of all, it's a slow song. And uh, one time, the chorus came to me, huh. just like that. Wow. And and it's such a simple chorus, you know. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and and at that, Rich Rath got up. With, with a beautiful sunburst Les Paul, plugged into a stack of Marshalls and started playing along. To this day, I'm I'm not sure if he was meaning to play along or to drown me out so I would <laughs> stop playing this song. But when I heard his guitar playing over that chorus that I had just made up, it was a moment, man. I wow. stood up from the piano, I looked over at Gary, our eyes met, and we were like, we both knew. Wow. We both knew that that we had just finally struck that balance that we had been searching for for, you know, some the better part of eight years. You yeah. know, it it happened right in, right in that instant. So, you know, the whole idea of a power ballad it, it wasn't something that was planned in any way. It was a total accident. Nothing we ever did well was planned. Those um, were all accidents. Anything we tried to plan too much, it never yeah, worked for right. us. Yeah. So that so we just have to rely on you know what we call the happy accidents and yeah. and uh, that 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 you know I always say that that the song was conceived the night before, but it came to life that that afternoon. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I I have to say I, when you guys put out the thirtieth anniversary of High Infidelity, you know I. It has those the band demos. Oh, the demos! Oh, that's and I, right. I'm the I'm, I always go straight to the demos. <laughs> I want I want to hear, and I was shocked at how much of the production you guys already had in mind. You know, when you first put those things down, like I to "Don't Let Him Go," I'm like, "Wow, that sounds like it's the same." It's almost the record down <laughs> to the way you approach the vocal and everything. I mean, it was all there. Yeah, for well, you guys. Well, and. It, it, that that album i mean we went in and did those demos in about 3 days at this this horrible studio on the wrong side of hollywood you know called uh, called crystal crystal sound a better name for it would have been crystal meth sound <laughs> <laughs> judging by the neighborhood but we spent th- 3 maybe 4 days there cutting these demos and just you know live vocals live solos uh, you know, I stacked some of the harmony parts on, you know, and songs like In Your Letter and Take It on the Run. We just blasted through it. 
um, uh, Neil had uh, had checked into what he uh, fondly refers to as a mental health spa for for a few weeks. So I was so the piano duties kind of fell on me. Uh, so th- those piano parts, you know. I had to play them, right? Yeah. Well, what, what are we going to do? But um, so we got out of there. We took a week off, and I took the cassette of the rough mixes that Kevin Beamish gave us, and it lived in my cassette deck in my car for that entire week. I listened to that thing so many times because the idea was listen to the demos and see where you where we need to change the arrangements, mm. where the lyrics might be a little weak. Where, and I listened to this thing. And after a week, we reconvened, and I was like, hey, guys, does anybody else feel like these demos are the album? Yeah. And everyone's like, are you out of your freaking mind? No, <laughs> no. We're, we're going to go into Kendon with the best equipment, and, you know, we're going to... Because everyone believed in the songs. Yeah. But, you know, everyone just thought that, oh, of course we're going to record this album at a, at a state-of-the-art studio with all the best mics and the best this and the best that... And I'm like, guys, you can you can create the technical end of it with technical tools, but you can't recreate a vibe. Right. And the vibe of that of those demos at Kendon, there was I, all I can tell you, there was something special going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, just the interpersonal uh, trip between the band members. I think Neil kind of did us a favor, in a way by not being there because mm. he went to get help. So that was like, so the whole macho, you know, invincibility vibe of the band, we all kind of were like, hmm. Mm. And I think it, it caused us to be just more open. There's yeah. more, yeah. more human with each other. Mm. And, and it, there, so there was this kind of, I don't know, an empathetic nature that, yeah. that, 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 that between Gary and I, where we were really, we weren't in competition. Huh. We were really helping. Mm. We were. I was giving everything I could to his songs, yeah. and he was giving everything he could to my songs. So it wasn't co-writing in the traditional sense, but, but it was collaboration. It was collaboration, it was collaboration sure. yeah. At, yeah. A, at a very deep level. Don't let him go is the first song that I've heard from that perspective because I feel like I've heard, I've heard songs um, to a man about not losing a woman. You know, like he, she loves you. From the Beatles, or "Tell Her About It" by Billy Joel, and then the, the song that talks about the man who is, you know, oh, he's this guy. He doesn't have much going for him. He's, you know, he's a big talker, or whatever. Screw that guy. But this is the guy. He's a big talker. He's got his car. He's got whatever. Don't let him go. That's a real. I've never heard that perspective. This this guy's. I mean, he sounds like a jerk the way he's described. You know. <laughs> Right. And and then yet you say, hey, give this guy a chance. Right. Where did that come from? Yeah. Well, like you know, it came from actually the um, the um, those verses are about a, kind of an amalgam of all all the band members. Uh, you know, that was there was very little of that description that was about me I, I, I thought that I was describing like a really cool guy right, he's a sweet talking stud yeah right? sweet talking stud <laughs> really I, but he, he, he does come up now thinking back sounding more like a jerk right but at the time I thought this I, I was uh, but yeah the chorus then is a it's just his plea basically yeah. with you know to you know because you know being in a rock band man you, you're there 
there's temptation at every turn yeah. and uh and and you're you know you're away from home a lot and you're you know you're just rocking you know you're you, you come off stage and you're 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 so high on adrenaline that you can't just go back and go to sleep so it's like the you got to keep the party going right. and and, uh, and then you get home and uh and you're like oh yeah, there's this, you know, and <laughs> and this is great too. Yeah. This is a very important part of of life, but it's a it's a hard thing to to balance out, and and usually, uh, you know, a lot of times musicians don't. It, it's it's rare when when you find that Alice Cooper, who's still married to the same woman he was married to back wow. then, you know. Yeah. But um, yeah. So that was that was that was my kind of plea on behalf of the of all the band members to all of our significant others to kind of you know that it was basically basically what i was saying is i'm a work in progress yeah you know and 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 don't don't leave me before i have a chance to become the man that i think i'm capable of becoming Follow-up to High Infidelity was Good Trouble, which spawned the top 10 single, Keep the Fire Burning. And, you know, I would imagine there has to be a bit of a sigh of relief, like top 10 single, because you're coming off this, you know, success. And I'm curious, like, when you go in to write a follow-up album to an album that has just been, you know, enormous, what kind of pressure, what kind of voices are there in your head as you sit down to go... Okay, you said earlier you got your whole life to write the first record. Right. Now, not only do I have a finite amount of time, I've got expectation on top of that. Yeah. Now, I, I will tell you that the, when the band uh, regrouped to, to start the, the follow-up album, uh, you know, we, we traditionally meet in the office of Sound City because it's just uh, like so familiar to us. And I came in and I'm like, Everyone's excited, you know, everyone's got their new cars and their new houses and everything. And, <laughs> and I walked in and I'm like, hey guys, uh-uh, I can't do it. I go, my songs are not finished. I, I, I'm not ready to make another album. And, uh, and it, talk about a buzzkill. I mean, I was just, <laughs> it was like, they wanted to kill me, you know, but I, you know, I was just telling my truth. You know, we, we had, we had, uh, had a rehearsal uh, leading up to that meeting, and I had a song called Sweet Time, which is on the Good Trouble album. Uh, and it was a kind of a ballad love song, and I was just kind of uh, in the process of writing it, and I just kind of played it for the guys at rehearsal, and and uh, our, produ our co-producer at the time, Kevin Beamish, who's now in Nashville, he comes up to me, gushing he's like man you did it again that's another number one single 
And I heard him say it, I watched his mouth moving, and in my head I was like, that is as hollow a statement as the lyrics of this song are hollow. I mean, it was just, the song was, it, there was nothing, you know, baby, you, you can take your own sweet time. Meanwhile, I've got the, the weight of the world on my shoulders. I had no sweet time. It was the opposite wow. of what, what I was feeling. And it just wasn't. So, yeah, the, the high fidelity was still on the charts. I mean, everything we did was was in the shadow of high infidelity. And, yeah. and really, what... If I would have had my way, we would have waited. Hmm. Uh, hmm. But you know, there's the record company. There's I was I was one man against the entire organization, basically. Right. And and hey, you know, I could have refused to sing. You can't force a singer to sing. Uh, and I could have I, had I been a, in a stronger place emotionally, maybe I would have. Hmm. I, I probably would have. But at the time. Uh, you know, I, 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 I regret the fact that I kind of folded like a cheap suit hmm. and, and I went along yeah. with an album that I knew we shouldn't be making. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, and Keep the Fire Burning was a top 10 single. To me, it, it was just kind of a samba version of Roll with the Changes. It, it wasn't, and, you know, and the, you know, Keep the Fire Burning. Okay, that's what I needed. You know, that was my prayer to, to myself because I was in, a pretty darkish place and but just the music just was ah you know just wasn't it mm. was it was rote as far yeah. as i was concerned and uh but funny enough when we play puerto rico that song was a huge number one single there and the the promoter tells me you're you looked at the song list and says you're not playing keep the fire burning and i'm like no, <laughs> I hate that fucking song. You know, and he's like, "Oh man, no, you, you there's going to be a, a an angry mob around the tour bus." And I'm like, "Oh great." So I go, I go to my hotel room, and I've got a day because we we put a travel day in there to to enjoy the island, and I and I start and this is years later, and I start playing the song on acoustic guitar, and it wasn't in the right key, so I capoed it up and ch and changed the. The, the, the key of the song and started playing some more open chords changed a couple of chords here and there and it was like oh you know what <laughs> it's not that I don't like this song I just didn't have time to finish it wow wow you know there, there was so much pressure to make the album that that and that's why people always say how come you guys never play any songs from Good Trouble on tour it's like because I never had a chance to finish them wow. you know? so but we worked up uh, Keep the Fire Burner we played it in San Juan <laughs> uh, just a few weeks ago and, and I think it's going to stay on the set list oh interesting so Well, the, you know, whatever shadow you felt from High Infidelity, you know, you were able to obviously get out from under it on the Wheels Are Turning album. Um, when you have a hit like Can't Fight This Feeling, I, the first time that I ever held a girl's hand oh. that I remember was in a couple skate at Brentwood Skate Center in the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, where we grew up. 
And the song that was playing was Can't Fight This Feeling. It is, <laughs> awesome. it's for me, it's very emblematic of that moment and that time and that era. And it's, when I look at bands. And you were like 35 I was, time. I was already 35. <laughs> 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 you know, holding hands is first base. <laughs> think about bands that had success in the 1970s that went on to have that kind of success in the 80s Um, one band i can think of would be heart you know heart had great success in the 70s and then great success in the 80s the difference is that the songs that heart had success with in the 80s they didn't write right and you came out and wrote can't fight this feeling which is as appropriate and well-timed and perfect for the moment song as I can think of for the mid eighties. I don't know anybody though, that had that kind of mentality that worked for the seventies and then it worked for the eighties. I think you kind of sit alone there. Cause you, even you look at like Chicago or something and David Foster was a huge part he was a, he of those big was, Chicago songs. For sure. Keep on loving. You must have been kind of opening a door to a song like can't fight this feeling. In a way, when you find out, okay, I can do this. I have this kind of ballad in me. And did you know that your instincts were sharpening and becoming ready for what the 80s were bringing you? Or were you a little bit surprised to find out, honestly, how current you were able to be at that moment after that level of success a decade before? Because what a different decade, the 80s to the 70s. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, a lot comes to mind when, when you talk about that. The, the, the truth is, I had written the verses for Can't Fight This Feeling before I wrote Keep On Loving You. Wow. Uh, and, and, and again, as is my bad habit, I, some, I sometimes, that initial explosion that we talked about earlier is the verses. And, and I don't always come up with the chorus at the same time because the verses are kind of the backstory and the chorus is kind of like, okay, what happened? Mm. You know? And sometimes, in the case of Can't Fight This Feeling, the chorus hadn't happened yet. You know, I hadn't lived the, the, that chorus yet, so wow. the verses just sat there. And um, hey, would would it have been great if if good if we would have taken you know? Th- th- there's a song called "The Key" on Good Trouble, which I'm kind of proud of. But if if we could have combined Good Trouble and Wheels Are Turning and just made that album and, yeah. and and had that followed High Infidelity, I think that would have served the band no. uh, better. But um, 
but Can't Fight This Feeling was a, um, uh, you know, that was when uh, I kind of, I did kind of feel like, okay, um, we were, we were done with the writing process for Wheels Are Turning, and there was no power ballad. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so uh, you know, as a as a band member, it's like, oh, tough shit. There's no ballad. Let's rock, yeah. you know. But as a producer, it's like, hmm, kind of would be helpful yeah. to to have a a ballad on this record. And then those verses came into my mind. I'm like, oh yeah, those verses. Because I always believed in those verses. Yeah. I, I had a number of bad choruses on those verses. One memorable moment was where I I got set up during my uh, hiatus from REO, uh, I was set up with the, in a meeting with Clive Davis, you know, the man with the golden ears. And I go in and I play my demo. And I think Time for Me to Fly was on that demo, an early version demo of it. And, and the song with the verses of Can't Fight the Ceiling, but a bad chorus. And Clive got to that song and just him and I sitting across the desk and he had this fatherly presence that, that I'm always drawn to. He was just so sweet and so kind. And he played that song, and I could tell when the verses came in, he like, he, his whole body language just lit up like, ooh. And then when it got to the chorus, it was like, boom! It was just so obvious that it was, that it was all wrong. And he, he stopped the tape, and, you know, we both knew. I was, yeah. like, I was like, I know, I need a better chorus, yeah. you know? So, uh so I, I always kind of remembered that that meeting, but you know, um, you know, I, I think what you know, Clive passed on me as a solo artist, right? And uh, you know, I think a lot of people would have been disheartened at that mm. uh, at, at that uh, moment, you know. And I, <laughs> naive, uh, you know, as I was, I walked out thinking, you know what? I think Clive's. Uh, System was running slow because because my, my demo didn't really didn't sound quite right. So instead of being like Perfect. you know destroyed at being you know being rejected right. by Clive Davis, I walk out thinking there's something wrong with him. It can't be me. <laughs> of course not. Of the course indomitable not. spirit of the artist. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, can't fight this feeling. Um, I did feel like I needed to follow up keep on loving you just as a producer and we are with my producer hat on mm -hmm. so um so i i was and i was so i ma i made a <laughs> i made a an appointment to co-write and i don't even think eric knows this story but uh with eric carmen of the raspberries yeah he's from cleveland tommy consola our managers from cleveland they played in rival bands when they were kids and <laughs> and eric had a pretty good track record of, of of ballads you know all by myself and uh so the the meeting was set up so i wake up that morning literally in a in a pool of sweat i i felt like i had 110 fever i was mm. I, I just was so i'm I, I called up. I'm like, I can't, I can't do Eric today. Yeah. Get out of bed, sit down on the floor of this, this giant bedroom we had in our old house. And I'm there's no one else home. And I literally started yelling and I, and just like, like a cathartic thing. And I, and I said, for the first time I've said, cause I was thinking of these verses. Right. And I'm like, what the fuck is this song about? <laughs> You know, and and I and I after I yelled it out, I kind of went, "Oh, I've never really asked myself that question. I've always just 
liked these verses because they were kind of different for me musically, a little more involved musically and in the, in the lyric, I had all three verses. And I'm like, so I went up and I dug out my old leather bound uh, lyric book where, where I keep my handwritten lyrics, opened it up to, the, to that page. I think the song at that time was called Help Me See the Light. Mm-hmm. And I open it up and there it is, the first line of the song. I can't fight this feeling any longer. Hmm. I'm like, oh, that's what the song's about. It's wow. not about the girl. It's about me. It's huh. about my inability to approach the girl. It's about and 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 it's about my life as a person who was taught from a very young age to not express your feelings. Yeah. If you're angry, if you're sad, if you go to your room. <laughs> And don't come down until yeah. you can have a smile on your face. Right. I remember those words. Those words are etched <laughs> in my brain. Right. And, it, and it hit me that can't fight. The, the reason I couldn't finish Can't Fight This Feeling was because I was still in its clutches. Wow. Uh. And, and so that w- w- when I had that moment, I literally, I, I shit you not, I flew down the stairs across into my, into my piano room, which, which my, I still have the piano, and... I wrote the B section and the chorus to that song in, again, one of those, what I call a furious burst. Yeah. And it was just, and, you know, and, I, and I've taken my, my share of flack along the, uh, over the years for lines like, uh, 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 throw away the oars, uh, oh, bring my ship, ship into, into the, the shore, shore yeah. and throw away the oars forever. It's like, I've gotten you know re- bad reviews, you know, <laughs> saying that that's just a horrible line, manufactured. I'm sitting here with you guys. I got no reason to to, to tell you anything but the truth. That line just it just it, it it just took its place in the song, and I I it was just there. It just yeah. It, yeah. you know that that whole that the and and the line uh, one of my favorite lines. Um, uh, uh, you're 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 a candle in the window on a cold, dark winter's night. Yeah. That was a line from the original chorus. Mm. So I kind of salvaged That's that. That's where the light image comes in that you were talking about finding the light. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. so I moved that the the chords to that B section uh, and that melody. I, I just knew that was something something special. And then once once I put words to that, then the chorus just it's you know I. I've said this before, but it kind of unfolded like a long stretch of highway. You know, if, yeah. you're t- if you're riding and you're on the open road and there's all of a sudden you get to a point where you can see the road, you, huh. you know you're 20 minutes away from the horizon, yeah. but all you got to do is keep your car between the curbs. And, yeah. and, and that's how I felt when I was writing the, the chorus. I can't fight this feeling. Well, and I think what's particularly interesting about the phenomenon that Paul is talking about is you look at a band like you know, Aerosmith or Kiss or Heart that you mentioned. And in those situations, you had bands who had this success in the 70s, but then for the 80s, it's like, okay, we got to bring in Billy Steinberg and Tom Kelly. Right. We got to bring in Holly Knight. We got to bring in Desmond Child, you know, Diane Warren. Diane like Warren there's there's this, that sort of like, here's the A team of, uh, of songwriters that we've got to bring in. And usually when they brought those people in, that's when those artists got there can't fight this feeling you know Mm -hmm. and as paul mentioned it's unique that you kind of made that transition on your own as a solo writer um but then we do see 
those kind of names beginning to appear in the late 80s um, on the Life As We Know It album, uh, a song like In My Dreams, which you wrote with Tom Kelly. And, um, you know, we see Diane Warren pop up a little bit later. What's funny is it's almost the inverse. You were having more commercial success by doing it yourself than when these folks came in. And we obviously know that these folks are all amazing, you know, songwriters. But there's something kind of affirming, I think, about no, you had the you had the instinct. You you knew what to do on your own. And I'm wondering how you look back now at that era of having gone from being very much a kind of a solo, you know, self-contained band guy to having outside writers come in and, and collaborate. Was that something that at the time that you felt um, comfortable with or did that feel like an unnatural process for you? Well, I mean, the truth is I didn't know what to do. I just did what, what I just served the songs that, that, that I wrote in, in the best possible way. Yeah. And as it turned out, uh, you know, Keep on Loving You uh, went on to be a number one single and a lot of rock bands kind of got the idea that, okay, we can be a rock band, but if we want to get our music on the radio, maybe we should put out something a little more melodic. And to me, you know, I'm a Beatles guy, man. I, 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 I just soaked up everything about the Beatles from, from the time I was a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. And the Beatles... what. Well, one of the things I loved about them was they could they could rock out, you know, long tall Sally in one breath and yesterday in the next breath and yeah. and everything and country, you know, I've just seen a face I can't mm-hmm. follow, you know, they they weren't um, they, they didn't define themselves by their genre. They defined themselves by either these are the songs we like and we want to cover, these are the songs we're writing, and I always thought to me that. That made sense. Yeah, to, me, yeah. to me, that's what a band's all about. Whoever, if you're in a band and you write a song, well, then that's, that's the band's songs. But, <laughs> right. um, but yeah, I think, um, uh, I think it's true. I think people kind of got the idea that, that having, a, having a, a, a love song uh, on your album was, was a good idea because it, it, it was more of a means to an end, I think, to, to a lot of bands. And, and it was like, okay, we got to have this ballot to get our record on the radio and then people will hear all the rest of the great songs on our album. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was, it was kind of like that. And I mean, I was a, I was a huge fan of Heart. I, I, th- th- their, their first tour, they opened for us. And, mm. uh, and I just remember just... Well, first of all, I was in love with Nancy immediately, and, <laughs> right. and you know we both played Ovation guitars, and, and uh, but um, but but it's true that they kind of had a second life uh, with professional songwriters. And all those names you mentioned, the, the, you know, we, we think of them as being us uh, being song factories. They're not. Right. They're just men and women <laughs> who sit down at the piano and pick up a guitar just like anybody else. You know, it's just right. that they for one reason or another, never ended up, ended up in a band. Right. Uh, you know, in some cases, maybe other people singing their songs served their songs better than them singing them themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, Tom Kelly goes back to Champaign, Illinois with us. You know, that, oh, wow. when you see Tom Kelly coming into the, to the fold as a, as a co-writer, he used to play the Red Lion, the same place that we used to play. It was huh. the two biggest bands in town were REO Speedwagon and the One-Eyed Jacks. And hmm. Kelly was in the was the bass player and singer oh, wow. in the One Eye Jacks. Great guy. Yeah. So he was a kind of a when we when we co-wrote with with Kelly, it didn't feel like we were 
bringing in an outside person because right. he was right. part of the family. But then when uh, uh, then when he teamed up with Billy Steinberg and they started just having all those amazing songs, you know, that then it became a little bit of a different thing. Yeah. But uh, it sounds like so much of your writing unfolds organically. You know, sometimes it might be. 10 years from the time that you have this nugget <laughs> to then it all like, Oh, it comes together. Um, so, I mean, kind of coming back to that idea of getting into co-writing, I mean, and that's a situation where you have an appointment, you know, and a lot of these stories that you're telling is like, it's almost like the song attacked you when you were unaware and you had to, you had to deal with it, you know, um, that writing by appointment thing, it, it, was that like kind of a, a, a trippy thing? Well, you know, I was I, I was encouraged to uh, to do it by uh, by John Barrick, who was who was my manager and also Tom Kelly's manager. John w- was uh, was a big part of those huge years that Kelly Steinberg had, and he he believed that I had that same ability to have that kind of massive song that maybe other people would would record. So yeah. he always encouraged me to co-write, and I love Nashville, so. But going to Nashville, it's like, what, so I did, what I didn't realize is what you're supposed to do <laughs> is do some homework before the writing session so that when you walk into the room, yeah. you got something, you know what I mean? You got a little, you, you, and maybe, maybe the other person or persons have something too, yeah. but you don't walk in there with, with an empty gun, you know what I mean? But I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so I, I, I never kind of succeeded as an as a Nashville appointment style writer because yeah. I thought just like what you're saying what if the what if the the crea- creative burst doesn't happen during these 3 hours yeah. I'm going to feel like a schmuck you know yeah. and that happened to me I, I wrote with the Warren brothers and at, at, at the peak of their popularity where they were just cranking out hits and and their energy was so amazing and so powerful and uh, I, I was just like I, I was like, oh, that, that, that. You know, I think I, I think I, I eventually came up to, with some ideas for the bridge of this song that we wrote, although I never heard the song. But uh, yeah, that was pretty intimidating until yeah. I realized that, oh, OK, right. you got to I, I, uh, I, I got a call from my great old friend, Richard Marks. Richard and I met when he did his first tour. Mm. I, I brought him with, with Ario as I, I heard his I heard don't mean nothing. And he was a young Chicago guy. I thought. You know, we don't really need to help selling tickets. Let's just help young artists who yeah. I dig. You know, yeah. so Richard and I have been friends ever since. And he called me up to to do some co-writing just a few months back. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I kind of came in with some <laughs> yeah, right. with, with a little ammo, and the the writing session went great. I I, I hope we finished this song. Though we actually started two songs. Yeah. But uh, so I kind of learned my lesson right. over the years, the uh, hard well, way. Of well, course. there's nothing, there's nothing emptier than a blank page. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it can be the most, especially when it's your notebook and the other guys. Sure. Are, yeah. And and it's, but there's an interesting point to be made there that it doesn't, you know, even if you've written a stack of number one hits and you've got this reputation to your name, the feeling of a blank page is as blank. That day, as it was when you were 17 years old, still trying to figure out how to do it. Oh, yeah. and, and that's maybe what people don't always understand. It, it doesn't mean that you necessarily are, are dealing with self-doubt, although sometimes that can enter the, the conversation, I'm sure. But there is still that feeling of sort of like 
trepidation and you realize you're sort of contending with the muse and you're contending with all of it yet again every single time you start with a blank page yeah it's I mean, true it's, it's it can be terrifying I, it, which i think is why that feeling you described when you finally get done with it it's as if you just summited everest yeah. you know you're like i, I did it thank you but god the, i did it and the flip side of that is the terror of feeling like I'm walking into this room yeah. with these amazing songwriters who, who are like professional, actually professional songwriters. And what if I, what if I come up empty? You yeah. know, what, what if I have only bad ideas? What if I, you know, so there is, yeah. it, it, it does take a, a, a modicum of courage to walk yeah. into one of those writing rooms. And, uh, and I, I always looked at it that way. As, as terrified as I was, I always felt like, and I still feel like, you know, you challenge yourself. At the point that you stop challenging yourself, mm. you're, you're done for. You know, you've got to keep, you got to keep, you know, stepping outside the box. I mean, there is some kind of blind faith that, mm. you, that you must have that allows you. I mean, when you think about what, what we do, we walk out in, a, in, in front of 20,000 people and play these little, as you said earlier, these little songs that we just made up in a room. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. they weren't always there. They, <laughs> right. they were once a blank page. And, and have the expectation that people are going to have paid their hard-earned money, that they work at a, at a hard job to, yeah. to earn, and they've paid it to share this music with you. And you think that... that is worth it. I mean, it's like <laughs> right. you know, you have to have some kind of craziness. You know, it's 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 a, and and I guess it can come off as confidence. It it's a combination of confidence, terror, um, blind faith, uh, trust. I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but um, it, I, it's like this doesn't happen to me. Yeah. <laughs> this happens to other guys. You know what I mean? Right. But. In that moment, it's like, okay, I guess, I guess this does happen to guys like me because you know, and and I just better come out there and give it all I got and then <laughs> yeah. sink or swim. It, it, it's like it, it's like that you know when you start at the blank page. It's 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 up to you. Yeah. You know, you 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 gotta you gotta believe that you're gonna come up with something that's gonna fill that page in a way that. Lots of people are going to like it, or at least you're going to like it yourself. Well, it's that same confidence that, that young Kevin had to have walking with the guitar down the street to the lesson when you know you're going to get yelled at from the car <laughs> right. going by, right? I'm going to do this. No we yelled what. at. On a good day, I only got yelled at. <laughs> <laughs> but now you say guys like, guys like me. I mean, guys like you now, you're a rock star. You're See, I don't, I, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm not, this is not false modesty. I really don't. I don't relate to that. I relate more to the insecure kid mm. in in high school who got pushed around a little bit, you know, a little bit of a mama's boy, you know, not not a great athlete, loved sports, but not exactly the first one picked in the in the, in the game of of, of pickup yeah. hoops, you know, and you know who saw the Beatles on TV, and I'd been taking guitar lessons for a couple of years, and I didn't know why, and then I saw the mm. Beatles, and I went. That's it. Wow. That, that my life just appeared to me on the TV screen, hmm. as as it did to millions of other yeah. people, as we talked about earlier. And what, by by, I've been in the right place at the right time, 
so many times mm. that it's it's I, I cannot possibly take credit for it, wow. you know, and, and uh, you know, luckily I'm also a hard worker. So when, when those moments happened, I had done my 10,000 hours of, yeah. of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of work and, and practice and, uh, and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't see myself in, in those terms. I see myself mm-hmm. as being a, a hardworking a person who made the absolute most of the of the the the, the meager gifts that, that 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 he was given, and uh, I would never be accused of of being uh, named most likely to succeed in high school. I was I would have been more like most likely to get my ass kicked on the way to my <laughs> guitar lesson. You know? <laughs> well, man, what a cool lesson for songwriters! Just the idea that. Uh, you know, when that opportunity is there, make sure you've prepared yourself, make sure you're ready, make sure you bring that hard work, you know, for when that lightning strikes, you got to have that work ethic and, you know, it is a mystery and it's also a craft and, you know, it's just been really amazing for us to sit with you today, Kevin, and hear about the stories, some of these songs that have become part of the DNA of our culture. And I can't thank you enough for your time. Well, it's been a pleasure, Scott, Paul. I mean, uh, as we said earlier, there are there are interviews, and then there are interviews. <laughs> some of them are I, I can't wait until they're over, and some of them it gets to the end, and I'm like, oh man, I want to do this again. So <laughs> you, you guys fall into the latter category. So hopefully we'll have a chance to to reconvene, and uh, there's plenty more stories to tell. Yeah, wow. awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft. Please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 